Okay, so um, how's the reading going? I think this is where I have to give you the obligatory, you're supposed to be doing nine hours of work outside of class for every four credit class. Um, so it may look like a lot of reading, but it's not nine hours a week, and it's supposed to be. Um, so I'm just doing my job here. Um, okay. Um, So, um, Angela? No. Connie. Connie. Oh, you were not here yesterday, right? I was here yesterday. You were? Okay. I was just puzzled. Um, all right. Uh, let's a little bit go back to, I, I'd like us to talk about Kawabata, and, um, but let's go um, back to Aristotle a little bit to talk about two more aspects of what he says. Um, one is, and this is what we'll be talking about today, I hope and think, is what he has to say about interest. Um, and so this is at the end of the section that I gave you, um, where what he says is, there are two, it's the last paragraph, um, there are two sorts of wealth getting, as I have said. One is a part of household management, or oikonomos. Um, the other is retail trade, the former necessary and honorable, while that which consists in exchange is justly censured. Um, so that seems um, a little bit harsh. Um, that is the whole idea um, behind um, an economy which extends beyond the household, is that um, people can produce things, um, more, some things more easily than other people can produce them. and. Um, trading for those things is a good thing. And then if you have an incentive for that trade, that is um, the whole idea of capitalism, which is still 2,000 years in the future. Um, but the whole idea of capitalism is to give people incentive um, to produce things which they might otherwise not produce. Um, do people know this is a terminology that I think is only used by Marxists anymore? Um, but do people know, have you heard the terminology of Department 1 and Department 2? A friend of mine wanted to start a punk band called Department 2. Um, do you know what it is? I actually don't. It's, um, it's in uh, Volume 3 of Capital, I think. Not in Volume 1, which is what everyone reads. Um, but in Volume 3 of Capital, um, Marx is puzzling over the difference between value and price, which is something that we'll start puzzling over today. Um, value is something which uh, there are ways of um, pegging value um, to something real. Um, but price is something that, that is um, created, let's say, by supply and demand rather than by the actual value of something. Um, you can confuse price and value, and you can say, well, the value of anything is the price people are willing to pay for it. But that's, not, that's clearly not true, because um, there are things that have use value that are nevertheless free, like air. Um, so there is some kind of idea of value which doesn't have to do with price. And um, if you then start talking about how value can be connected with price, um, 
which is what Marx, which is the big, big thing that Marx as an economist is trying to figure out. Um, it turns out to be hard but not impossible to do. Um, and um, the basic idea in Marx is that what gives something value is how hard is that it has to have use value. What gives it exchange value is this, and we'll talk about this later on, but what gives it exchange value um, is that it has use value. If it doesn't have use value, then it shouldn't have exchange value because ultimately it should be consumed. Um, so it, ha it should have use value. And then the amount of exchange value it has obviously is not connected to the amount of use value that it has because air is the most useful thing there is. Air is something that you can't survive without for more than five minutes. So air is more, has more use value even than water, which has more use value than food, etc. Um, so the most useful thing there is, but it's free. Um, for now, until Nestle takes over. Um, but right now, air is free. Um, so you can't figure out exchange value, that is, how much gold you would exchange for something or how much of another commodity you would exchange for something simply by looking at how valuable it is to human life, pure and simple. Um, so <coughs> is there a connection between the exchange value of something and um, its um, uh, use within human life. So, so Marx's basic idea is it has to have use value to have exchange value. Um, this uh, will get complicated and may not be true, but this is the basic schema and outline of his idea. Um, to have exchange value, it has to have use value. Um, no one is in the market for cockroaches. And so you can't use cockroaches. You can't, it's really hard to sell cockroaches. Not impossible because, in fact, there's some scientists that need cockroaches. But on the whole, it's really, really hard to sell cockroaches. They don't have, um, because they have no use value, they have almost no exchange value. Actually, interestingly enough, do you guys, are you, are any of you plagued by roaches in your dorms or houses or anything? Um, you are? Wow. Because now they have those, the, because for the last 10 or 15 years they've had those pheromone roach traps and roach, the, the roach population has plummeted. Um, when I was growing up, they were everywhere. Um, I lived in a house where I had to surround, this is New Haven, Connecticut, where, I had to, where the floors were covered with boric acid and I had to surround my bed with a zone, just a, just a hill of boric acid. And what I managed to do was breed roaches that loved boric acid. Um, they're supposed to hate them, but these, these guys loved them. They were like ghost roaches. They had boric acid all over them. Um, and it was like they were talking to me from the boric acid. Um, at any rate, roaches, the reason I'm mentioning this is that roaches actually once did have use value. Any of you ever um, played by bed bugs? Anyone ever get bitten by a bed bug? Um, they're a real pain to get rid of. Um, the way they were gotten rid of by the pilgrims was they used roaches to get rid of bedbugs because roaches eat bedbugs. And the reason bedbugs have become so much more an issue now than they were 20 years ago when they just weren't an issue was that there were roaches everywhere and they were eating bedbugs. 
Um, but once people figured out how to get rid of roaches really well, once the chemical companies figured out how to get rid of roaches really well, the bed bugs thrived. Um, so they once had use value, roaches did, and who knows, they may have use value again at some point. Um, right now, however, not many people are going to pay for roaches. So they don't have much exchange value because they don't have much use value. Um, but there still is a distinction because, something, because the fact that something has extreme use value like air doesn't mean that it has much exchange value at all um, because it just doesn't because it's available to everyone. Um, so unless, you know, you're, you're a murderer and you're strangling someone unless they give you their money, then what you're doing is you're making air very, very exchange valuable to them. Um, so Marx wants to know, is there something that determines exchange value over and beyond use value, which, which, because use value clearly doesn't do the trick, um, and the, what's the classical answer to that? I said it before. It's the two words, blank and blank. Yeah, so air is, um, ha, it, there, there's an endless demand for air, but there's an even greater supply than a demand for it. Um, so because the supply is there, it doesn't have much exchange value. So Marx, who hates that language, although he's wrong to hate it because Adam Smith, um, is really amazing, as you will see. Um, nevertheless, essentially uses that language by saying it's basically how hard it is to get something that has use value that will determine its exchange value. So air is easy to get, and that's a way of saying there's an abundant supply of it. Um, certain other things are much harder to get, um, and therefore their exchange value goes up. So um, air might be easy to get, but a 1959 Chateau Lafitte is hard to get, doesn't have as much use value as air, um, but because it's so much harder to get, um, it is, um, it's got much higher exchange value. Um, so much higher exchange value that people regard it as like almost a crime to drink it. Um, because you're just consuming something that in its state, in the bottle, recorked every five years by the chateau, um, it's an amazing thing. And if you drink it, it's just sour grape juice. Um, so hard to get for Marx gets measured by how much work goes into producing it. That is essentially what it means for something to be hard to get, is that you have to work to get it. You have to labor to get it. So for Marx, no one has to labor to produce air, but people do have to, and no one really has to labor to produce water, but they do a little bit, which is to say that there have to be reservoirs and pipes bringing the water in, and maybe the chlorination of water or wells have to be dug, or there, there have to be conduits from streams. So there's some labor that goes into getting water to people, and so water actually costs money. You get water bills. You don't get air bills, but you get water bills. Um, harder still to get is Coca-Cola, 
which requires not only getting the water, but um, mixing the ingredients and carbonating it and bottling it and shipping it to places. So more labor goes into producing Coca-Cola than goes into producing um, a glass of water that comes, a tasty beverage coming out of your tap. Um, and, of course, the ingredients for Coca-Cola also require labor. If it's um, regular Coke, um, the sugar has to be grown and cut and processed and refined. And, um, and so, there's, so there's more labor that goes into producing Coca-Cola than goes into producing water, and there's more labor that goes into producing water than goes into producing air. Now, famously, it's um, for Coke and for a... Um, uh, um, a soda manufacturing company, diet sodas cost about one-tenth as much as regular sodas because they don't need sugar and because sweeteners like stevia or saccharin are much, 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 much cheaper to produce than sugar is. Um, so here, but they, they charge the same. If you go to a vending machine, a Diet Coke is not going to be cheaper than a regular Coke, but Coke really wants you to be buying the Diet Cokes because the Diet Cokes cost them a lot less to produce. So here you have a disconnect between um, exchange value and the difficulty of producing it. And what's happened is that regular Coke gives you a price point and then Diet Coke, it seems reasonable that it's just another flavor of Coke, kind of, sort of. And so it's sold at the same price point, but Coke is making a lot more money out of Diet Coke while destroying your brain. Um, but not your pancreas. They're making a lot more money out of Diet Coke than out of regular Coke. Nevertheless, the basic idea for Marx is what is called the labor theory of value, and things are valued by how hard, how much work goes into producing them. And what work is can be anything. Work can mean hammering a nail into a board, or it can mean digging something out of the ground, or it can mean um, exploring for the source of um, unobtainium. If you remember that from Avatar, that's what they go mining in Avatar is, is the um, element called unobtainium. Um, and um, so there's all sorts of different kinds of labor. Um, and what they have in common is that they're labor, that we have a sense that there are certain things which are work and um, how hard you have to work to get something is the first and most important idea of what gives something value. Yeah. So it's all judged in the unit of labor. So yeah. like for him, like a lump of gold that somebody just trips over in the woods is like less valuable than one that needs to be like dug out of a mountain. Okay, so notice that this is one of the things that you can although he's not talking at all in a Marxist way, it's one of the things he's talking about when he talks about how the discovery of um, untold amounts of gold and silver in Central and South America destroyed Spain because they were basically tripping over gold. And um, that turned out to be terrible. But what do you think Marx's answer, leaving, leaving um, the sudden appearance of massive amounts of gold, which was uh, a gigantic historical event, what do you? What can you imagine the argument on the other side would be? 
Um, that is that if you trip, if you find a piece of gold, or if you um, stick someone up and get, take the gold coins out of their pocket, does that mean that gold is less valuable than the gold that is dug out of the ground by a miner? What would Mark's answer? His answer is obviously no. Um, why? If it were less valuable, no one would stick anyone up. Oh, it's really easy to get this gold, so it's worthless. Um, but that's clearly not true. The reason people stick each other up is because the gold isn't worthless. So how do you think he would answer that? It's a good question. Yeah, so Marx is going to say that capitalism is going to say that that's not a bug but a feature. Um, that is that if um, there are easier ways which take less labor to produce something, um, then uh, that's a good thing. So if it's um, easier now uh, to produce rice um, through mechanization than it was a thousand years ago, um, that's a good thing not a bad thing. Um, so um, robbing people, that's called um, rent, actually. Um, and what rent is in economics, does anyone know the term? It's not when you pay your rent, although it's, it's not really related to paying your rent for your apartment. Um, does anyone know what, uh, what um, rent seeking is in economics? So rent seeking is when you look for money without um, by by intervening and without um, um, without yourself producing something to get the money. So the basic idea is that in trade people trade stuff and they trade ultimately what they're producing. When um, banks, for example, or um, other financial institutions, you know how when you buy a ticket and you have to pay a $5 premium because you're buying it online? Um, it's not costing anyone $5 or anything remotely like $5 um, for you to buy it online. It's just, it's convenient to you, so they charge you for it. Um, because they know you'll pay, even though they're not producing anything um, which um, is worth the $5 that you're paying um, as a convenience fee or whatever they call it when you buy something online. Um, so that's rent-seeking behavior. They're interposing between in a transaction in which they're getting paid just because they managed to interpose between that transaction <coughs> and... Um, um, and it goes through their hands when it doesn't have to go through their hands. Um, if you go to the box office, you don't pay the extra money. Yeah. But couldn't it be argued that there was a cost in the initial setup of the online service, mm -hmm. and this is just paying off that cost yeah. retroactively? Yeah, except that the cost in the initial setup mm -hmm. of the online service is like the two cents that... Um, 
uh, Google gets if you click on an ad. I mean, it, it's, you can say there's a tiny cost that goes into setting up the online, online service. They buy it off the shelf for, you know, $10,000, and then they make millions off of it. So um, I'm not saying there's zero cost. I'm saying the relation of the cost um, of a convenience fee um, to, what it, to what it actually costs them to set that up, even if you include all their costs in setting it up, um, is ludicrous. And everyone knows it, but um, everyone pays it anyhow. Um, and this is all, there's a lot of behavioral economics that goes into this. You know that if you buy a ticket online, whatever price they give you is nothing like the price you're going to pay, right? Um, because there's always going to be, there's the convenience fee, and there's the transaction fee, and there's this and there's that. And all of that is rent-seeking behavior, is rent-seeking. Um, and uh, so rentiers, or rentier as they're called, um, they're generally considered the bad guys of capitalism. Um, there's a famous phrase by John Maynard Keynes, which is... Yeah, euthanasia of the rentier, and what he means is that eventually economies will be so efficient that um, that won't be a position within the economy anymore. Um, hasn't happened. And that went into reverse, I suppose, the digital economy. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think it has gone into reverse. And if you just think of the fact that if you make a purchase um, through an app on Apple, Apple gets 30% of the purchase. So if you buy something, if there's an in-app purchase, Apple is just making money hand over fist on an in-app in purchase where you could make the purchase just as easily if you took two seconds to go to the website on your phone instead of doing it through the app. Um, but they're, they're not cheating you directly by taking 30%. They're cheating the seller. But, of course, the seller is going to pass it on to you as higher prices. Maybe then yeah. I once heard, this is a very strange thing, I went, went to this conference where Wallerstein, this uh, Yale, like sort of this, this person who's a, you know, sort of... History of the economics. Death, the death of capitalism. And everyone in the room was very left-wing, but then by the end of the talk, everyone was really sad that capitalism was dying <laughs> because it really made it sound like it was such a good thing and now it's gone. Yeah. It was one of the... Well, it depends what it gets replaced with. And Marx thought capitalism was a huge advance over feudalism. Um, he, he wasn't against the coming of capitalism as opposed to feudalism. Um, and um, what he thought was capitalism would eventually and naturally turn into socialism. Um, so if it's a return to feudalism, Marx would be um, very much against that. Um, Lenin thought you should hurry it along. Um, and <coughs> Marx might not have disagreed, but he certainly wouldn't have agreed with Lenin-style um, socialism and Lenin-style revolution. At any rate, um, so the basic idea here, to answer Prue's question, is that um, it's not how much a particular piece of gold you have 
how much labor it cost you to get it, um, nor necessarily is it how much labor it cost the particular miner of that particular piece of gold to get it. Um, someone might, um, you guys know the Beverly Hillbillies, or are you way too young? <clears throat> you know the show? Have you heard of it? of it? Sorry? I know the gist of the it. The gist of it. It's got a great, do you know the song? I think so. Um, okay. Uh, let me tell you a story about a man named Jed. Poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. Then one day he was shooting at some crude and at some food and up through the ground came some bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold. You know it? Texas tea. They used to show what, uh, night? Yeah, yeah. They used to show when I was when I was uh, sick or claiming to be sick and not going to school during the day. I loved watching the Beverly Hillbillies. The other early morning shows, Leave It to Beaver is okay. Beverly Hillbillies was great. The others really stunk. Um, however, um, there's a great line in it, which if you ask people of a certain generation, the philosophical question, what's the first thing you know? The answer is, from the song, Old Jed's a Millionaire. Um, so you can get... You can get older people laughing uproariously if you ask them that as a quiz question. What's the first thing you know? And they'll have no idea what you're asking them. And then if you say, old Jed's a millionaire, they'll laugh and laugh. So try it. Um, so Jed is lucky. He shoots at some food, and there's oil there. And he becomes, the first thing you know, what happens? <laughs> yeah, good. Old Jed's a millionaire. So they move to Beverly Hills. Um, that's, that's the premise of the show, is that you have this um, Arkansas family um, that uh, shoots its food and um, has, has uh, um, all sorts of um, customs that don't look like Los Angeles customs, but they're very rich, so everyone is sucking up to them. Um, so... Um, He's lucky. He shoots at food. There's oil. No labor went into that. All he was doing was, was he discharged his gun luckily, and there's oil. In the meantime, if you're watching There Will Be Blood, it turns out that Daniel Day-Lewis, the character in There Will Be Blood, has to work like a fiend to get oil until he starts cheating um, other people out of their oil and drinks their milkshake. You all know that scene? You should see There Will Be Blood. It's just great. Um, and um, but he works much harder. The movie opens with him working really, 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 really hard to get silver, which he fails at. He's trying to mine silver and he fails at it. But then he hits oil while looking for silver, and then he has to change his entire life and work really, 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 really hard to get oil, and he gets oil. Um, so. Jed Clampett gets oil by shooting a gun. Daniel Day-Lewis gets oil by, um, like Brett Kavanaugh, working his ass off, to quote our newest Supreme Court justice at his confirmation hearings. No, his tail off. I'm sorry, he would never use a word like ass. He worked his tail off. Um, so um, why are they worth the same thing is um, Prue's question, or are they worth the same thing? And the answer is basically that unless you do something like um, rape and pillage Central and South America of enormous um, balance-changing amounts of um, precious metals, um, any individual 
like Jed or like Daniel Day-Lewis is only making a trivial difference to the general supply um, and the trivial distance, the difference that they're making to the general supply means that the labor on average that it takes to get a barrel of oil or the average labor that it takes to get an ounce of gold doesn't change. So the fact that someone um, finds gold and finds a gold mine, um, that's already baked into the price that from time to time people will find gold mines and will pan for gold or will find rivers that have gold in them. That's baked into the price because this just happens every so often. It's statistically um, expected that it will happen. So the value is the average amount of labor that it takes to produce a commodity. And that average amount of labor um, is what gets exchanged. So the basic, the, this is a statistic um, or an interesting factoid that I once heard, which is still true, um, which is that over, if you, if you smooth out the relationship over like two or three years so that fluctuations in prices don't make that much of a difference, um, it has been the case since around 1770 in the U.S. or the proto-U.S. that a good man's suit, the kind of thing you would wear if you were a lawyer in a Tony firm in New York, that a good man's suit costs about an ounce of gold. So um, an ounce of gold, I don't know what it is now, but it's probably around $1,500, and a, and a really high-class suit is, you can get a decent high-class suit or a really good, not high-class suit for $1,500. And back in colonial days, an ounce of gold was like $20 or something, and so it was a high-class suit. And um, so why is this? Because the technology has kind of kept pace, so that the technology of gold mining means that it's easier to get an ounce of gold now than it was in 1770 by far. Um, but the technology of suit making has also um, kept pace so that it's easier to make a high-class suit now than it was in 1770 by far. Um, and the amount of labor that goes into producing an ounce of gold has stayed roughly equal to the amount of labor that it takes to produce a suit. So what's happening is an ounce of gold in a suit, that's the exchange of the amount of labor measured in how much time how much time it takes to produce something when you labor at producing it. So I think this is a pretty generally accepted, this was Marx's theory of value, and I think it's actually pretty generally accepted um, by most economists now. Um, it's, you don't have to be a Marxist to believe in the labor theory of value. I think there are very few economists who don't believe in some or another version of the labor theory of value. Um, so that now what you can say is, and this is, I see Ian ready to say this, that some labor is skilled and some labor is unskilled. So why should an hour of unskilled labor be traded for an hour of skilled labor? And the answer is that it isn't. Um, that into skilled labor goes all the labor of getting the skill. 
that if you're a doctor and you're a highly skilled laborer, you charge a lot for an hour of your labor. But that hour is including all the unpaid labor that you did as a pre-med and then in medical school and then um, the very low-paid labor that you did as an intern and as, as a resident and so on, that over the course of a lifetime, the amount of labor um, that a doctor does averaged hour by hour um, is going to equal the amount of labor, of products of other people's labor that um, may be any particular hour, um, they're um, producing something that they sell a whole lot less for a doctor's visit. You can work 10 hours mining gold and then go see it and pay all that money to, to, for a 15-minute doctor's appointment. But all the labor the doctor has done throughout her life um, is essentially going to have to be baked into that 15 minutes also. Yeah. I just, I don't know if that's entirely accurate, though. It's because, not, but. Yeah, because if you say someone works in a minimum wage job yeah. their entire life from the time they're in, they graduate high school, and then a doctor goes to medical school, incurs college medical school, incurs all the costs, and then becomes a doctor, by the end, the doctor will still have, like, a lot more. A lot more money. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely true. So I was taking, purposely taking ex extremes that if you're um, working at a minimum wage job and um, someone else has become a doctor, obviously the doctor, the skills that the doctor gets um, over time will count for a lot more per hour of working life than um, what a minimum wage worker gets in their working life. So at this point, um, you have to, um, all sorts of other um, um, moderators come in, um, things that, things that um, um, affect the final equation. But nevertheless, Marx has this idea then, which, he, which is um, his important phrase, abstract human labor. And it's not that it works for every person, because it sure as shit doesn't. Um, but what it means is that if two-thirds of an economy, let's say, are minimum wage workers, and one-third are, and this is still labor, we're not talking about CEOs here, um, one-third are physicians, um, then um, the abstract labor is much higher. It's like, it's like the kind of difference people talk about between the median, the mean, and the mode. Or, you know, if Bill Gates walks into a bar, suddenly the net worth of the average net worth of everyone in the bar, if there are 100 people in the bar, the average net worth of everyone in the bar is a billion dollars. And if he leaves, we're back to our own schmucky selves. Um, so it's true that abstract human labor only has, um, uh, doesn't have a close relationship to individual um, experiences of labor. Um, but nevertheless, um, how much work it takes to, do, to produce something is the um, final, natural, real, um, actual um, thing that is going to give something value. And um, not to produce a particular thing in a particular time, but on average how much <coughs> work it takes to produce something. Um, that, however, is not the same thing as price, but that's something uh, we can talk about um, later. 
Um, if it, yeah, we'll we'll have to talk about it a little bit. Um, so that idea that um, labor time is the ultimate input for value, um, with all sorts of caveats like um, the caveat Ian is offering right now, um, that labor time is the ultimate input for value. Um, has a lot of policy um, consequences. For example, um, if you're China, if you're China, as our president says, um, you will want um, your workers to be as skilled as possible, um, or at least you would want your skilled workers to be as skilled as possible, um, because skilled labor has more than average amounts of value per hour of skilled labor. So it increases the average overall. Um, and that's, that's a good thing. So teaching skills, education, all of that um, increases um, the, um, what the labor is doing and therefore the average value of abstract labor. Um, so th anyhow, that, that's, the, that's the basic idea. So um, when people are engaged in exchange, what they're doing is they are exchanging the fruits of their labor. So if you make pencils and I make apples, um, then the number of pencils I will get for one of I will get from you for one of my apples will ultimately be regulated by how much work I had to put in to um, creating the apple um, and how much work you had to put in <coughs> to create the pencils. Um, and if pencils are easier to produce than apples, then I'll expect um, more than one pencil per apple. If pencils are harder to produce than apples, then you'll expect more than one apple per pencil. Um, but it's how hard they are to produce, how much work goes into producing them. Leave aside owning the land, um, having trees, um, having orchards where I can grow the apples, or you're having sources of wood and you're having a pencil factory, just we'll take that as given, and now the question is how much labor goes into creating those things on average. If I'm really bad at producing pencils, then I'll work really, really hard to produce three pencils, and um, the apple that I get for it, I might have done a whole lot better just um, having my own little pot with a little apple sapling growing from it than working really, really hard to produce these three pencils. So people generally should labor at what they are good at producing with their labor. Um, because if they're not good at producing it with their labor, then they will do more, it'll take them more than average amount of labor to produce something. And if it takes them more than an average amount of labor to produce something, they come out behind. If, on the other hand, it takes them less than an average amount of labor to produce something, then they come out ahead which is why people innovate. If I figure out that I can make pencils more quickly by um, changing, by, by a modification to my pencil making machine, then I'm producing those pencils with less labor than is on average used to produce pencils, and so I can get more apples for the labor that I do. Um, so this is, this is a, um, according to all views of capitalism, from Marx to Hayek to Milton Friedman, um, this is what produces innovation. Um, innovation is a way of, of staying ahead 
of the average amount of labor it takes to produce something. Um, that's why there's this fear of robotics now, that um, apparently at Davos all they talked about were how robots were going to um, replace laborers and how good that would be um, when everyone is unemployed because robots are making everything. And um, the reason they want robots making things is that it takes less labor if you have a robot doing it. Um, and if it takes less labor, you're getting more from what you're producing from the labor of others than the labor that you are producing or hiring to produce the thing that you are um, uh, marketing. What are they going to do about aggregate demand? Well, see, that, that's where things get interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things that Keynes was interested in, is that there's also the question of demand. Okay, so department one, just so you know, is um, when something is produced um, for consumption, pure and simple. So department one is um, uh, you um, or our society creates corn and we eat it. It then disappears into department one. Department two is our society creates corn and some of that corn is saved as seed corn so that more corn can be produced in the future. So department two is when the fruits of labor, um, when commodities are used in order to be reinvested into producing more commodities. And so Marx, in trying to figure out the relationship between price and labor, he has to make that distinction. Uh, we probably won't go into it much in this class, but um, and it's a terminology that no one uses anymore, um, except maybe some, some diehard Marxists. Um, but depart that's department one versus department two. Um, in Marx. Um, so at any rate, then Aristotle says um, a couple of really interesting things. Um, so one thing he says, and this is um, his version of what in Marx will turn into um, a labor theory of value. It's his idea of the value of money, which every economist after him is going to agree with. So what he says, this is not the last paragraph, this is a bit before, when he's talking about um, coin, this is a paragraph that begins, hence, I think it will be, if you have the handout, it should be on page three at the bottom, hence men seek after a better notion of riches and of the art of getting wealth than the mere acquisition of coin, and they are right, For this is after Midas, for natural riches and the natural art of wealth getting are a different thing. In, the true, in their true form, they are part of the management of a household, whereas retail trade is the art of producing wealth not in every way but by exchange, and it is thought to be concerned with coin, for coin is the unit of exchange and the measure or limit of it. So one of the definitions of money is that money does more than one thing. It is... Here, um, Aristotle calls it the unit of exchange. Uh, we might get a lot of what he means by unit of exchange by using what more modern phrase? The blank of exchange? Currency. Currency, yeah. And what, so um, what is gold, though? It's the medium of exchange. That's the standard thing to say. Have you guys heard that phrase, the medium of exchange? Okay, it's a really important phrase, and, it, and it's worth thinking about. The medium of exchange means that um, gold is always 
the intervening between what I make and, and what I sell and what I buy. So money is in the middle between my selling and my buying. If, like most people, I sell my labor, which is what most people do, if they get a job, what they're doing is they're selling their labor. If you're a waiter, you're selling your labor. If you're a busboy, you're selling your labor. So what you are selling is your labor, and then you are getting money for what you have just sold. You sell your labor, and you are paid for your labor in your salary um, or in your wages. So you sell your labor for wages. You take the money that you have gotten for selling this thing that you have, namely your labor, and you buy something else with it. So the money is there to be given to you for what you've sold so that you can then take it to buy something. So money is a medium of exchange. Um, and gold, there's lots and lots of literature about why gold is the perfect medium of exchange. Do people know about this? I first read this in Goldfinger, in the James Bond novel Goldfinger, um, where um, either Goldfinger himself or maybe it's M explains to Bond um, why gold is so important and has been a medium of exchange in so many different societies. Do people know why? Like, aren't there a bunch of qualities? Yeah. It's like scarcity is one of them. Like, gold isn't overly useful for, like, manufacturing mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. And there are, like, other qualities. Mm -hmm. like, Sorry? Malleability. Like Malleability, yeah. Yep, easy to turn into a coin. Incorruptibility, gold doesn't tarnish or rust, um, so that you don't have to worry that it's going to lose its actual physical value. Um, if you used iron, it would rust, and um, as the famous line goes, um, bad money drives out good. Um, so gold doesn't rust. Um, gold is um, very, very easy to um, keep in good shape. Um, you don't have to do much for gold to stay gold. Um, you can stay golden really easily. You're supposed to laugh at that. Oh, well. Um, pony boy. Um, it's malleable. It's infinitely divisible, at least for all practical purposes. Any quantity of gold that you want, you can, um, it, it, you can have. You can have. If you get gold, you can divide it up in any way that you want. Um, it's not like breaking up a Kit Kat bar where it's just going to crumble into, into crap if you don't break it along the lines. Um, relatively portable. That is, gold is light um, compared to what it's worth. Um, so it has, so it's in a way a perfect thing to be used as a medium of exchange. So it's the medium of exchange, but Aristotle says the word unit of exchange, which may imply something else, which is it's not only the medium of exchange, but it is also, um, yeah, what? It's just how we value, like how we determine price. It's the measure and tool. Okay, so it, so, uh, so it is the unit of exchange, which means that it is how much something is can be measured by how much gold, let's say how many gold coins that thing costs. So it's not only a medium of exchange, but it's a measure, he says, or limit of it. 
And it is also the third thing that everyone says about gold is that it's a store of value, which unit of exchange might also imply. That is that if you're not using it as a medium of exchange, someone gives you gold and you um, put it in your drawer, the reason you're doing it is that you're able to store value by putting it in your drawer. You can use it later. There's no rush to use it. The value is there in the gold. So it's a medium of exchange. It is a measure of value, and it is, which is to say that it's a bookkeeping um, device, and it's also a store of value. It's a place that you can store value. So people Generally, we know all this without making that distinction, but Aristotle was the first person to make the distinction, and Adam Smith makes the <coughs> distinction in, in the canonical way, which is something we'll read for next week. Okay, we will talk about Kawabata, and, but Merchant of Venice, we'll do this all through Merchant of Venice and interest and usury on Monday. So have a good weekend. <laughs>